0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 121, and it's the second week of 1902. General Jan Smuts is making merry in the Cape, trying to stoke uprisings, while Lord Kitchener has been more successful in clearing the eastern Transvaal, forcing General Louis Botha to shift towards Freyheit and along the border between the Transvaal and Natal. General Christian de Wet is active in the Free State, while General Mani Maritz has continued his low-level harassment of the British across the Free State and the Cape. I haven't spent much time on Maritz, mainly because there's not a great deal of documentation about exactly what he got up to on a daily basis, unlike some of the other generals we've been following for two years. He is unfortunately also one of the most bigoted, warped and psychotic men who held a weapon during this terrible war, who tended to lie quite a bit in his later memoirs. During the Anglo-Boer War, he was the only Boer general we know about who took a great deal of pleasure in killing blacks instead of British. He seemed inclined to shoot all blacks he found. His most heinous act was lining up 35 men of a koi village at the end of the war and shooting them down in cold blood in what became known as the Lillifontaine Massacre. I will have more details about this in March. Meritz evaded execution at war's end for what were really war crimes. After all, the Australian Breaker Morant was executed by the British for a similar spree as he went about shooting at least a dozen Boers in cold blood. But back to 1902. General Cours de la Rey is also still free, roaming the felt in the far west of the Transvaal, and he has been particularly successful around Rustenburg, Mafeking, Mariko, Zirist, and other smaller towns in that region. But many Boers are starting to give up the fight. Still others have joined the British in tracking down their former colleagues, setting the country up for a really difficult post-war reconciliation process. That deep distrust of each other amongst the Boers, let alone between Boer and Britain, was to emerge during the First World War in 1914, when some hardliners rose up again, sensing this was a chance to rid themselves of English dominion. And their own leaders at the time, like Louis Boerter, and Jan Smuts, who had decided to throw in their lot with the British after the Boer War, suddenly found themselves fighting against their own people. Still, generals like Maritz Kemp, de la Rey, De Wet, and Besaidnert rebelled in 1914, but that, as they say, is another story. General Jan Smuts has always been seen as a conflicted character, particularly as he was as busy as any other Boer leader during the latter phase of the Anglo-Boer War executing Boers he regarded as traitors who had joined the British. He had many shot and was confronted later about what was seen as hypocrisy. Yet, 14 years after the Anglo-Boer War, Smuts was himself leading British and South African troops against the Germans in East Africa. That was in 1916. On behalf of the British Empire, that's about as collaborative as you can get. The hardliners never forgave him for this. But Smuts in 1902 was a hardliner himself, a bitter ender as they were known. He was a true war hero and had survived many, many bloody encounters with the British and provided the bitter enders with a great template and an example. Like other Boer leaders at this point, Smuts was infuriated by the National Scouts, which was a unit established in November 1901 and made up of ex-Boer soldiers now fighting for the British. One of the companies was led by Pete Devette, brother of Christian Devette, who was now hunting his sibling down in order to try and shoot him. We heard previously how Christian's hatred had caused him to make a few mistakes tactically. Pete Devette had told All in Sundry he was trying to end the war quickly because he could see that fighting further was just wasting human lives, and therefore had joined the British to help end the war quickly. While his brother refused to accept this and preferred the honour of dying for his cause, whatever the cost. These two Boer political positions would be echoed throughout South Africa's history and are still part of the political makeup of our country. The really damaging reality was the National Scouts were much sought after by the British because they knew what their Boer adversaries would be doing and understood their weak points. The National Scouts moved at night and at speed, just like the Boers. This infuriated the bitter Enders. Thus, they were executed when they were found. At Christmas, Boer Reverend Kestel, that was in 1901, Christmas 1901, made his position clear about the National Scouts. These Afrikaners are making it possible for the British to cover long distances at night, he intoned in a sermon. How tragically are the noble feelings within those people dampened, inexplicable how they can go from farm to farm and look on while women and children are molested, blood of their own blood and marrow of their own marrow. One of the youngsters fighting the British in the Cape, and who would have agreed with the Reverend Kestel, was Denise rates as we heard last week, Reitz is riding with General Ansmatz again after finally catching up with him near the town of Kelvinia in the Cape. January 1902, the middle of summer, and things, though, are cooling down for the commando. They have had a tough time of it as they rode around the Swartberg or the Black Mountains north of present-day Grahamstown, around the historic towns of Craddock and Graf Reinet, then through the mountains near Port Elizabeth and Nisner, their close encounters of the British kind happened almost daily, and they were tired out, particularly as they tried to evade patrols in the southeastern Cape forests, thick with ancient yellowwood, stinkwood, white pear, beech, and assegai trees. This forest was once roamed by herds of elephants, which were still living there when I was a child. However, the last known evidence-gathering expedition was in 2016 by a park ranger called Sibwe Nondobo, He only managed to videotape a single old female. If there are any other elephants, they are deep in the most inaccessible gorges. The forest elephants were unusual in that they could move silently like phantoms. Through the forest, the dense undergrowth absorbing the sound of their big feet and the canopy of leaves obscuring direct sunlight, which meant you could not see their grey silhouettes. They were scarcely visible among the green camouflage browsing feinbossed plants, leaves of trees and ferns. The only clue of their presence would have been a tree suddenly crashing down as they leaned on it, or if one were close enough to hear the low-frequency rumbling of their language as they speak to one another. The Nasne elephants, once giants of the forests, have evaporated into the mist of myth. The forests of Nasna hold great secrets. It's ancient and remains a wild place, particularly around the mountain area to this day. I've travelled through back roads in these mountains, they're restless and spooky, characterised by steep mountain crags, dropping hundreds of feet in sheer cliffs, lashed by sudden rain showers, resonating with the sounds of strange insects. Snakes slither past, and at the time smuts and rates rode through, inhabited by elephants and leopards and other wild animals. Yellow woods a thousand years old and 100 foot high, as well as giant ferns and dotted with dark ravines. It's a mysterious part of South Africa, where people still go to insulate themselves from civilization, and where those who dwell there don't always take kindly to strangers. So Smuts and his men on their horses found this area covered by British forts, and the few roads or passable paths were guarded day and night. So it was time to head to the vast open semi deserts to the northwest, the great Karoo and the beauty of the Namaqualand. There he had been busy as they waited in their oasis of quiet in the vast rocky and scrubby plains. By January 1902, Smuts was writing letters, which were smuggled out of South Africa by German South West Africa to the north. Of course, it's now known as Namibia. Smuts was a stickler for discipline. He had his own men flogged for drinking or going on furlough or leave without permission. He put everything he did in writing and sent these by dispatch rider to his field cornets and commandants. Smuts ordered men not to loot before the end of a battle, and then only under the supervision of an officer. The correct treatment had to be afforded to all prisoners of war, black and white. In this, he was very different from Meritz and Quitzinger. In between organising his commando, Smuts wrote dispatches to General Christian de Wet, Coors de la Rey, and General Louis Botha. He also sent long letters to President Paul Kruger, who was still living in the Netherlands. One of the more bizarre letters received during this period was one delivered to the British pro-Boer and former editor of the Paul Maul Gazette, William Stead. Smuts wrote, I cannot forget that I owe my education and some of the greatest pleasures of life to England, to its great literature and its profound thinkers. Smuts wrote even as he hid from these well-educated English officers, some even alumni of his university, Cambridge. But he also said that England was now possessed by what Smuts called this demon of jingoism. Stead agreed. Just as a side note, Stead was doomed to die on board the Titanic. In an ironic twist, he had published a story in 1892 called From the Old World to the New, in which a ship rescues survivors of another ship that collided with an iceberg. Unfortunately, he drowned on board the Titanic. It's also curious to consider Jan Smuts, this general, so far from the lounges of London, sitting under a Karoo starlit night in the African semi desert, having suffered so much from the hands of British troops around him, still imbued with enough emotional intelligence to understand that not everyone who is from a country thinks in exactly the same way, and maintaining close links with Stead. Smuts was a complex man and could see the world in a clearer way than most people. And Rates was to spend quite a bit of time with Smuts during the next few weeks as his dispatch rider. First, though, Rates was to make an acquaintance with Commandant Marnie Moritz. We crossed the intervening mountains to the Great Plain that runs towards the Atlantic 60 miles away, Rates writes in his book, Commander. At the foot of these mountains lies the village of van der it had been recently garrisoned by the British, but Commandant Maritz had swooped down and captured it. This Maritz was a policeman from Johannesburg, who after many adventures had established himself in these parts as a leader of various rebel bands. At first, Rates was rather smitten by this malevolent force, purely because of Maritz's passion for his people. He was a short, dark man, of enormous physical strength, cruel and ruthless in his methods, but a splendid guerrilla leader. However, they had missed Meritz. It was the locals who told him the story of how Meritz had descended on Pantreinstorp and then disappeared by the time Smuts and his commander rode in. The local population were welcoming and believed the British had left for good. Smuts and Meritz would now operate through this area until the end of this war, albeit some distance apart. This was also to lead to a symbolic moment in Smuts' life. You see, it would be Smuts who would personally stumble onto Maritz's war crime in March, which would cause the future South African Prime Minister to reflect on the entire war and its meaning, as well as view some Boers' apparent slide into savagery with trepidation. These events would lead to Smuts' eventual political reversal, where he believed the fundamentalism built on the felt would only push the Boers backwards in terms of human social development and once again would throw in his lot with the British Empire. So at van Reinstop Smuts asked Rates to become his dispatch rider. Earlier, the youngster managed to tame a wild mule and now was no longer marching alongside the commander. he was back in the saddle. He had already covered a great deal of ground and Smuts then ordered him to head off to find Marnie Moritz. My mule had unflinchingly trotted the better part of 200 miles in five days, he writes. But now he was off again and found the commandant 80 miles away in the neighbourhood of Tontelbos. This region is incredibly dry but it has some wetlands scattered about in the depressions and lies around 70 miles south of the large town of Uppington close to the border with German South West Africa. This place was an important grain growing centre, At which the British had posted a force of men to prevent the crops from being carried away. Moritz had taken upon himself to attack Tontelbos the day before Dine's rates arrived, but had been repulsed with heavy losses. The short dark brooding commandant had also received a serious wound himself. I found him seated on a chair in a farmhouse with two of his men dressing his wound, a terrible gash below the right armpit exposing the lung, an injury that would have killed most men, but he was like a bull and seemed little the worse for it. He was there during the first days of the new year and then started back to Smuts's commando, eventually catching up with the general after a hard three-day ride near Neboatsville on the escarpment. Smuts had sent the main part of his commando and a commandant, Bouver, to the plains to the south. They had seen few English troops but were now ranging far and wide in the Western Cape. Some of our patrols went beyond Portersville to within sight of Table Mountain, says Rates. Even more miraculously, one of Rates's colleagues went a step further. Kricher, who was Smuts's brother-in-law and who had been badly wounded at the Battle of Spionkop two years before, managed to ride all the way to Malmesbury, close to Cape Town itself, and brought back a large sum of money for the use of the commander from General Smuts's father who lived there. One would imagine that the British had old man Smuts under scrutiny, but apparently he still managed to evade observation and send money to his son. General Smuts now moved north, heading towards the Orange River in order to organise numerous rebel patrols that were under arms there. This was no walk in the park, it was a 300-mile march through semi-desert, where temperatures topped 40 degrees in places during the day. So they travelled at night. Reitz was in tight company, as it was only Smuts' staff and himself who undertook this difficult journey. First, though, they passed back through Tontelbos, which the British had now evacuated as the crop had been harvested. Maritz was here on a pallet of straw in an empty dwelling house, but he made light of his wound and was well on the mend. For all his weaknesses, there can be no doubt that Maritz was tough and courageous. In this area of the Karoo, many Trek Boers operated. They were people who were linked to the original Trekkers, who had started leaving the Cape in the late 18th century, looking for space, wanting to live their own lives away from the cities. I need to talk a little more about the Boers' need to find their promised land. It forms a crucial part of the people's narrative. It's deeply held that they are the chosen people of God, the Israelites, and that one day their travels will end with the discovery of the land of milk and honey. The Trek Boers were nomads in the traditional sense. They may have been pale-skinned, but could have been part of the Middle East 5,000 years earlier, or even the Koi or transhuman Bantu. The Trek Boers were extremely religious and lived from one well to another with their flocks. Like the old peoples in the Bible, says Raitt. This is more deeply entrenched than many realize, particularly in post-colonial Africa. For example, in 1988, I had the experience of travelling to a town called Eldoret in western Kenya, which is fundamentally forged by the Boers. It is 3,700 kilometres or 2,300 miles from South Africa. And that's where I met the descendants of Trek Boers who'd arrived there after the Anglo Boer War as displaced Afrikaners who had no place to live. They arrived in 1908. Fifty-eight families, led by a certain Jan van Rensburg endured an arduous trek laden with wagons after being shipped to the Kenyan coast. They started farms, including a 5,000 hectare Sigurd farm, now part of a massive golf and wildlife resort in Eldoret. Other families built shacks, put up fences, ploughed using oxen, sowed wheat, maize and vegetables. This actually laid the foundation to the plateau becoming a prosperous agricultural region to this day, as strange as it is, is true. The Boers started this agricultural revolution. Remember, the British colonized Kenya and had allowed the Boers in to improve food production shortly after the Boer War, knowing how well they farmed. Eldoret was then established by the Boers in the midst of the farms they had created, and known by the locals as Sasibu, because the main farm number was 6four or Sisibu in the local language. Then, 60 more Africana families arrived in 1911. By then, it had a post office and was officially named as Eldoret, which continued to prosper. Eventually, the railway line reached Eldoret in 1924, accelerating growth. Then in 1933, electricity arrived, along with an airport. By the 1950s, the town was literally divided in two along the main street. Afrikaners living in the north, the English living on the south, of this street. The English went to the Lincoln Hotel for drinks, the Afrikaners went to the wagon wheel. However, by 1987, only two Afrikaner households remained in Eldoret, with the rest having moved back to South Africa in the late 50s and 60s in the aftermath of the Mau Mau Rebellion and in anticipation of independence. There's another story here. The Eldoret Boers, as they call themselves that I met in 1988, were all black. They are the descendants of Boers and are proud to be part Boer, part Black African. These are the Black Boers of Kenya and their churches are covered in the Oxwagon art which is found in South Africa and their dress code still has resonances of the famous Boer bonnet or kapi and other cultural links. They seek to distance themselves from the kikuyu, the local ethnic group. As we all know, history is a place where preconceptions must be put aside, where anything can happen and usually does. Many of these people, unhappily though, were targeted by other ethnicities fairly recently in the outbreak of violence after elections in 2007 and seven and eight. And the Trek Boers can no longer be found in South Africa, their nomad lifestyle stymied by land ownership, law and necessity. Where they roamed in this part of the Cape, it's now dominated by iron and other commodity mines and organised farming. So, after this short sojourn into Trek Boer history, We returned to Smuts, rates and the area just south of the Kalahari Desert. We travelled mostly at night to avoid the blazing heat of the day, and at length reached Kakamas, a small irrigation colony founded by the Dutch church on the south bank of the Orange River, writes rates, Kakamas was a tiny settlement in 1902, and the inhabitants lived in huts made of grass and reeds, but they had dug out a canal from the river, and had established fields and orchards so successfully that the place had become a supply depot for the surrounding districts. We had spent a pleasant fortnight here eating fruit and swimming in the river every day. raids had not been able to have much R&R. This gave him more time to build his energy for the last four months of the war, and he would need it, given the amount of riding he was to do in an area the size of France in the next few weeks. We must halt, too. I promised more from Johanna Brandt, the Boer spy in Pretoria, which will be forthcoming next week, so please join me then. Also, if you can, please rate the podcast on iTunes, and if you would like to send me a message, you can do that on Twitter at Des Latham, or mail me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. En sonder gedaan langs die mooie fieste wale, dat ek vir oorlogsdage ble. Obring mee terug na jou Transval, daar waar my sarie woon. Daar onder in die mille is bedig rondoor 'n boom, daar woon my sarie Marie. Daar onder in die mille is bedig rondoor 'n boom, daar woon my